Welcome back to the Homestyle MMA Podcast. This is Sean Van Buren here for Episode 7. We had a great fight night this past weekend with UFC Fight Night Blades versus Aspinall. Please go follow at the Homestyle MMA Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Homestyle MMA Pod on Twitter. The podcast website is hosted on Podbean. You can type in the Homestyle MMA Podcast.podbean.com for additional information and all of the available listening locations for the podcast. Let's dive into the UFC Fight Night Blades versus Aspinall Fight Card. The O2 Arena in London delivered a phenomenal environment for watching fights as always. I feel like they always deliver when we get to witness some fights in London. This fight was a tale of two cards though. The prelim fights were heavy on the decisions, the main card fights were heavy on the finishes, so the fans kind of lost interest a little bit towards the end of the prelims, and then they were reeled back in with Molly McCann and Patty Pimblett doing their thing in England. One thing that the prelims and main card shared was that a lot of the favorites had their hands raised. I like to find a few good, hungry underdogs to maybe come in here and make a big statement with a win. We didn't have a ton of that this past weekend. I think the main card fighters set themselves up for some really big fights coming up next and saved this card because their two arena fans, again, were not very happy with the prelims. Unfortunately for the fans and fighters, we had an odd ending to the main event fight for the second week in a row with the completion of Blades versus Aspinall. We'll touch on what that means for the division later on in the podcast. And with that, let's dive into the prelims. Wait, new segment alert. I am a huge fan of Bruce Buffer myself. I think he's a very great guy. He's great for the sport of MMA, particularly great for the UFC. So we're going to do a Bruce Buffer suit watch. This past weekend, Octagon announcer Bruce Buffer dressed in one of his best suits like he always does. Always looks very clean, always very professional in the Octagon. So I just want to show some love to Bruce each week. For this fight card, he wore black pants with a nice gray and black floral design suit jacket with the black shirt underneath. Very clean look, very professional look, and Bruce got our night going with his legendary fighter introductions. Time to talk prelim fights, and the night started off with Claudio Silva versus Nicholas Dalby. I told you last week that Claudio Silva had to get takedowns and probably a submission if he wanted to win, and he did fall just short in this fight. Silva went to his wrestling right away in round one to get a takedown and get the fight where he wanted it to be. He wanted the fight on the ground. He wanted to use his Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He is a very credentialed jiu-jitsu fighter. He quickly moved into a dominant position on top in full mount. It was actually looking really good for Claudio Silva in that first round because Nicholas Dalby struggled on the bottom. He tried to use a lot of big energy, large movements to try to explode out of the positions instead of using technique. So maybe spend a little bit more time, Nicholas Dalby, working on jujitsu transitions on the bottom because those are big energy expenditures and they were also unsuccessful because Claudio Silva was able to flow with the big movements, maintain top control, and win round one. Unfortunately for Silva, that was the only round he won and that was also pretty much the only chance he had at a submission in this fight. He did duck under a left hook and get an easy takedown to start round two, and he quickly moved to back control. So one thing Silva did very well is he would get the takedown and 
immediately moved towards whatever position he wanted to go for, but while working on the rear naked choke once he got to the back, he didn't maintain tight control of Nicholas Dalby's body, and Dalby actually was able to turn into Silva and reverse the position and end up on top. Dalby won a few exchanges on the feet. Pretty much every time, the fight did stay standing, and it was clear that Silva had to fight on the ground to get a win. In round two, Claudio Silva was visibly tired, and his gas tank had emptied. So all of that hard work he put in in round one to get the takedowns, to get to the positions, to have a chance at getting those submissions, really sapped his energy, and he started fighting very slow, and his hands were down. It became kind of clear that he was no longer fighting to win, per se. He was fighting to not get finished, and Dalby easily took over the fight as it moved forward and he got the decision win. Mandy Bohm versus Victoria Leonardo. This fight was a little bit frustrating for me to watch. We had Mandy Bohm in the homestyle perfect plate parlay with her massive reach advantage. I thought she would be able to keep her distance, point fight Leonardo, and really give her no chance at getting inside. That's not how this fight played out at all. Mandy needs to put some work in on using her height and reach advantages to keep the other fighter away and to score those points from a distance. Victoria Leonardo had a great game plan to get inside Mandy's reach. What she would do is she would throw multiple strike combos while moving forward. She maintained forward movement for the majority of this fight, and it made it very hard for Mandy to keep her distance. Victoria would throw three or four punches, get hit with one in return, but by the end of the exchange, she would then be within her own punching distance, and she was able to land herself. Once on the inside, tight with Mandy Bohm, she also used the clinch along the cage to neutralize the reach of Mandy, and she really just had a phenomenal game plan. She knew how to get inside that reach of Mandy Bohm. Mandy did not the best job with her movement and not the best job keeping Victoria Leonardo away. I did think this fight was closer than the three 30-27 judge scorecards giving the win to Victoria Leonardo. I gave Leonardo round one with the takedown to end that round. I gave round two to Mandy Bohm because she did land some very damaging strikes in the tie clinch with her knees in that round, and I think that those are the most significant strikes of the fight, so I did give her round two, and then I leaned Victoria Leonardo in round three due to her aggression and control time in that round. Victoria kind of made sure to do maybe one little thing better than Mandy in each round, whether it was a takedown, clinch control time, or volume striking. And I noticed that kind of just gave her the edge in most positions because Mandy wasn't able to keep Victoria off of her. I also noticed something a little odd with Mandy Bohm's stance. From what we typically see in MMA, I noticed that she stood a little bit more sideways compared to being, you know, squared up to the fighter that you're facing. By standing so far sideways, it actually left her front leg very available for most of the fight for any kind of single leg takedown. Now, Victoria didn't necessarily take advantage of that that often, but other fighters in the future will. Go take another look at this fight. Check out Mandy Bohm's stance. Mandy Bohm needs to make some slight adjustments to her stance because a strong wrestler will take advantage of that position. Mandy Bohm, like I said, was on our homestyle perfect plate parlay, and it was officially busted early. On the flip side, Jai Herbert versus Kyle Nelson. Jai Herbert did a great job controlling the distance to utilize his 6-inch reach advantage. Kyle Nelson fought pretty smart. He was using kicks to score points while he was on the outside of his punching range because of that reach disadvantage. But while fighting on the outside and realizing he couldn't quite land with his punches, he realized that Jai Herbert was still in his kicking range, so Kyle Nelson did shoot those kicks as often as he could while he was fighting from the outside. 
He also shot a few takedowns to try to get this fight in tight to neutralize the reach advantage. While Kyle Nelson didn't finish any takedowns, he was able to keep the fight in tight against the fence in the clinch. So overall, I think Kyle Nelson did a good job from a game plan standpoint. He knew what he needed to try to do to get inside with Jai Herbert, but Jai Herbert was just a little too good on Saturday night for it to make a difference. His reach allowed him to throw more volume strikes when they were fighting at a distance, and even when it got in tight with clinch against the cage, he was actually able to put out even more tie clinch activity in the later rounds and was even able to get some control time by reversing the position. I had Jai Herbert losing round one, but then he came out in round two much more light on his feet and he was bouncing around a lot more. That was a key adjustment in this fight. Like I mentioned, Kyle Nelson early was going for leg kicks, he was going for takedowns, he was trying to get control. By staying light on his feet, moving around, it was a much harder moving target for Kyle Nelson to go after. Kyle Nelson we also saw start to fade in rounds 2 and 3 as he was running out of energy faster than Jai Herbert. So that movement made it that much harder because Kyle Nelson had to kind of chase for the rest of the fight. Smart, smart, smart adjustment from Jai Herbert after round one to win rounds two and three by using more efficient movement to maintain his distance and keep Kyle Nelson off of him. Both fighters needed to win to stay alive in the UFC, and unfortunately we'll have to see what UFC wants to do with Kyle Nelson because he's now lost four of his last five fights. Mohamed Makayev versus Charles Johnson. Mohamed Makayev made me eat my words, I suppose, from last week's episode. Any fighter that can land 12 takedowns and attempt 26 in three rounds is very clearly the real deal. I didn't quite know what to think of him because his first UFC fight was so short, but clearly the fans knew because they made him a massive favorite in this one. His cardio was incredible, and not that I thought he was bad. You know, like I said, I just didn't know what to expect from him. I just didn't think that he should be such a large favorite over Charles Johnson. For the flip side with Muhammad Bakayev, what did he really do with the wrestling besides takedowns and control? Now, the numbers I put out were incredibly impressive, 12 takedowns and 26 attempts, but he finished the fight with only 12 significant strikes and three full rounds of action. One thing I would love to see him use in the future is those positive positions, those takedowns, the control against the cage, getting the back of the opponent. Use those positive positions to land more damage in his next fight. Make no mistake, Mikhaev dominated this fight. He clearly is a wrestling machine. All I'm saying is that I would like to see him use his striking more with his wrestling or work towards submissions. Just blend in another martial art in order to be a little bit more dominant from a damage standpoint. There was no doubt that Makayev won the fight, but I think he does have that room to improve. And that's really a scary thought for the division, and it's not really meant to be offensive to Makayev. The guy dominated the fight, he won every round, and he still has room to improve his game. That is not good for everybody else. It was not a great showcase for Charles Johnson and the former LFA champion. Will probably bounce back in his next fight, in my opinion. I think he just wasn't ready to wrestle with Mohamed Makayev. But at the same time, I'm not sure how many flyweights would have been ready to deal with Makayev's volume of takedowns on Saturday anyways. Like I said, 26 takedown attempts in three rounds is wild. And he landed 12. Mohamed Makayev's just going to be a problem for the entire division with his cardio and his chain wrestling. He was able to flow from one takedown to the next to the next with no breaks for Charles Johnson. That is exhausting. Charles Johnson fought as hard as he could to get to positive positions. He definitely never gave up in this fight, but Mikhaev got a dominant victory. The flyweight division can always use some new and exciting fighters, and I just really hope to see Mikhaev fight a ranked opponent in his next fight, and I hope to see him continue to improve, blending in 
his striking with his wrestling so that he can do a little bit more damage in the future. Our next prelim fight was Makwan Amir Khani versus Jonathan Pierce. We knew both these guys wanted to wrestle in this one, and we did see a great wrestling battle with these guys flowing on the ground, constantly changing positions, a lot of transition wrestling transitions in the two rounds that this fight lasted these guys landed seven of 12 combined total takedowns so they were both very efficient wrestlers but as i said on last week's episode makwan uses his wrestling to get to jujitsu submissions and pierce generally uses his takedowns for ground and pound we did see that in this fight unfortunately for amir khani he never quite had a great opportunity to really threaten a submission attempt and he used a lot of energy trying to get to those submission positions. Pierce threw great ground and pound strikes and elbows every time he found himself in top position while flowing on the ground with Amir Khani. He made sure that anytime he was in a positive wrestling position, he made it hurt for Amir Khani. He made sure to throw strikes. Those elbows were vicious from Jonathan Pierce. He bloodied up Amir Khani early in this fight. Pierce did a great job defending on the ground using his own jujitsu to get favorable positions. One thing that I loved is multiple times Amir Khani would get on top and Pierce would actually use a Kimura grip from the bottom to reverse the position and end up on top himself. Like I said, once he would then get on top, he'd quickly let go and fire off some short elbow strikes or punches. He would make sure very quickly land some damage. He knew that he would have to get back to rolling with Amir Khani's offensive wrestling and jiu-jitsu. Jonathan Pierce is now rolling on a four-fight win streak, and he might find himself with a ranked opponent, maybe around 13 to 15 in the featherweight division for his next bout. With one win in his last five UFC fights, we will have to see what the UFC does with Makwan Amerikani. Next, we had Nathaniel Wood versus Charles Rosa, and this fight had heat right away. I thought the odds were way too wide in this one, and Nathaniel Wood proved me very wrong with an absolutely dominant decision win, including two 30-26 scorecards from the judges. Nathaniel Wood immediately went into a flow state with his striking. He was fluidly switching between punches and kicks, finding his mark very well from the start. And Charles Rosa fights like a dog. I mean, that guy never gave up, so they were going at it right away from the starting bell. One thing that Nathaniel Wood did to really separate himself in this fight was that he was throwing absolutely punishing leg kicks throughout the entire fight, but we saw them impacting Charles Rosa's movement right away from round one. Charles Rosa showed pretty good resilience in this fight because it did look like Wood was going to get a finish at some point, and that never happened. He never gave up. He continued to fight, even though for three straight rounds, Charles Rosa really just kind of got pummeled. Nathaniel Wood's leg kicks were frequent. They were extremely heavy. He looked incredible on the feet, and Charles Rosa did have a chance in this one. He was very close to a submission finish at the end of round one. But that was really the only time he threatened a chance at victory in this fight. Like I said, Nathaniel Wood really dominated on the feet. And I think that if Charles Rosa wasn't as tough as he is, if he couldn't take the punches that he could, Nathaniel Wood would have gotten the finish. I felt like Wood was landing whatever he wanted as far as strikes were concerned. And by the third round, Charles Rosa was starting to fall down from those extremely heavy leg kicks from Nathaniel Wood. One point in the third round, Charles Rosa even tried to pull guard at one point, and that was really the sign that his legs were on fire. It was a very dominant win for Nathaniel Wood. He looked like he was having fun in there in front of the home team crowd. The crowd was backing their fighter nicely with emphasizing all of his clean shots with a shout. Unfortunately for Charles Rosa, this is four losses in his last five fights as well. Another hometown fighter, Mark Jacasey versus Damir Hadzevich. I told you last week that Hadzevich struggled on the ground and that 
Jacasey would get multiple takedowns in this one. And that's exactly what happened. I expected Jacasey to win dominantly and that it would go decision. Both of those things happened. Hopefully he put some money on that prediction and got a little bit extra odds. Mark Jacasey was 8-4-11 in takedowns with a staggering 13 minutes of control time. 13 out of 15 minutes he was controlling the fight, earning two 30-26 scorecards from the three judges. Similarly to the Muhammad Makaya fight, the only thing I would really like for him to continue to work on is mixing in some efficient striking with those dominant wrestling positions. While Mark Jacasey did land 78 total strikes, through three full rounds, he only landed 13 significant strikes. So kind of a similar statistic to, to Muhammad Makayev, absolutely dominant from a wrestling standpoint, but they didn't work that much damage into those wrestling positions. We knew that Jacasey had the wrestling advantage and he worked his game plan really exceptionally well. It was a good win for Mark Jacasey and ultimately a pretty easy one for him. I think if he wanted to have a fast turnaround, he could do so because he didn't really take much damage. Nothing really unexpected from this fight. It was easily wrestling win from Mark Jacasey. Demir Hadzovic has now only won one of his last four fights and the path to beating him has become very obvious you just have to wrestle the crap out of him so we'll see what the UFC wants to do here Mason Jones versus Ludovic Klein this was the fight that was kind of added late to the card I told you last week that I wanted to see Mason Jones get at least five takedowns in this fight, but he only went for three, and he didn't get any of them. By not being able to get those takedowns, he fell behind pretty early, and he ended up losing this fight 30-27 to on all three judges' scorecards. Both men threw pretty heavy punches and kicks in round one, but not many combos. It was a lot of one-shot you know, one strike and then kind of watching their work as opposed to three or four strike combos. I think either fighter could have really benefited from throwing some combos early on in this fight. Klein did throw a pretty cool looking jumping switch kick that went viral on social media a little bit, but it actually looked partially blocked to me. Because both fighters were throwing hard, even their blocked strikes were making really loud contact, so the crowd was getting excited. Finally, the crowd was starting to get into this fight card, and the energy really needed to start to be lifted heading into the main card fights. In round two, clearly, Klein knew what I was thinking because he came out with the necessary adjustments and started to throw combinations. At the end of a nice flurry of punches, Klein dropped Mason Jones with a nice right hook that caught Jones just behind the ear. It was the most significant shot of the fight, and I thought the matchup was actually pretty evenly matched, but Klein edged out Mason just barely in each round to get that 30-27 dominant victory. On my scorecard, and how I saw it, Klein won round one with higher volume striking. He then won round two with that heavy knockdown with the right hook. And then he won round three with being able to control the more exhausted Mason Jones. It showed he was a pretty well-rounded fighter. He knew he had to do something better each round in order to win the rounds, and that's what he did. I thought the prelims ended on a pretty good note because the fight was closer than the 30-27 to scorecards would suggest because each round was actually pretty close and, and separated by just a few actions within those rounds. The London crowd was growing anxious as seven of the eight prelim fights ended by decision and they needed the main card to bring them back in. Let's go ahead and dive into the main card. The main card kicked off with Paul Craig versus Vulcan Uzdemir. This fight was a little bit of a snoozer, but 
the rest of the main card was pretty solid. Vulcan Uzdemir used forward pressure very aggressively immediately in this fight, and it forced Paul Craig to pull guard many times. So it was just kind of an awkward fight because Paul Craig was just falling down to the mat pretty often, and Vulcan Uzdemir knew he did not want to engage on the ground, so they would stand there, kind of look at each other a little bit until the judge would make Paul Craig stand up. Paul Craig did get the fight to the mat and immediately started to work for leg locks and heel hook submissions. Paul Craig knew his key to victory was to try to get a submission win, but Vulcan Uzdemir did a really good job defending. He kept his knee in a safe position, and Paul Craig really put the pressure on early in the fight to try to get a submission win. He was working straight arm bars as well, really any kind of submission that he was in the position to go for. Vulcan Uzdemir did a good job flowing on the mats and making sure that he stayed on top so that he could always return to the feet. Uzdemir did a fantastic job defending. He was making sure that he could stand up whenever he wanted to. He'd land some shots whenever Craig would drop down into guard or go for a takedown. He wanted to make sure that he could hurt Paul Craig when Paul Craig would start working for a submission. He wanted Craig to realize, if you're going to go for the submission, I'm going to make it hurt just a little bit. Vulcan won rounds 1 and 2 on my card with his damage and round 3 with his volume striking. I did not expect this fight to go the distance. I thought either guy could finish the other because of their strengths versus the other's weaknesses. Uzdemir really bullied Craig during this fight with his pressure and hard shots whenever Craig would try to get the fight to the mat. Paul Craig did fight decently well on the feet. I actually thought that he should have tried to keep this fight standing a little more. Part of the problem with Paul Craig in this fight was he landed some really creative strikes cleanly because I think Vulcan Uzdemir was so focused on stopping takedowns. Paul Craig had too many takedown attempts that were not set up, so Uzdemir did a good job seeing them coming and escaping them. I just think if Paul Craig had mixed his striking with his wrestling more, he would have been more successful with the takedowns and maybe more successful at getting to good submission positions. Vulcan Uzdemir had a great game plan. He landed shots on the feet, stuffed the takedowns, and worked on the mats just long enough to score points and escape submission threats. It was a good clean win for Vulcan Uzdemir. Meatball Molly knows how to get a crowd going. Molly McCann versus Hannah Goldie, and Molly had this arena rocking. High intensity in this fight very early, with both women working at a fast pace and a lot of volume striking. It was very clear from round one that Hannah Goldie wanted to fight up tight in the clinch or to get the fight to the mats. She did not want to stand and bang with Molly McCann. As I mentioned to you in the last episode, Goldie went for six takedowns in each of her last two fights prior to this one. And in the first round of this fight, she went for five. So she very much wanted to get this fight to the ground, but she was unable to finish any of her takedown attempts. Meatball Molly landed a huge right hand over the top of Goldie's guard late in round one that kind of had her a little bit stunned. She started to back up towards the cage, and then Molly McCann followed it up with what I guess is now her signature spinning elbow, landed flush, jumped on her with a flurry of punches to get the TKO victory. Molly McCann continues to gain star power. We saw her working her elbows earlier this week in some training videos. She celebrated the win by jumping into Dave Portnoy's arms, the founder of Barstool Sports, of which Meatball Molly is a Barstool-sponsored athlete. It's Meatball Molly time, folks. She needs a ranked fight now and going forward. I think she should be ranked somewhere around 13 to 15 in the women's flyweight division, and she needs to be matched up against someone else in that ranked 10 to 15 range. She did a great job stopping takedowns, keeping the fight on the feet, which is where we knew she'd want it to be because she is an excellent striker. And now Molly McCann has back-to-back -back amazing finishes and her stock continues to rise in the UFC. Now is the time to capitalize on it. 
Molly McCann is probably one of the most universally loved female fighters on the roster, and it's time that the UFC built her up into some big-time fights. Our next main card fight was kind of sad to watch. We had Nikita Krylov versus Alexander Gustafsson. I think all of us fight fans were excited to see Alexander Gustafsson return to the light heavyweight division, and he got cracked by Krylov early. This isn't uncommon for Nikita Krylov. He likes to start fast and get very quick knockouts literally within a few minutes of his fights, and he used that same strategy against Alexander Gustafsson. He wanted to finish right away. His pressure was relentless. Nikita Krylov threw constant strikes, constant pressure. He didn't let Alexander Gustafsson get one moment to relax in this fight. Nikita Krylov got it done. He finished this fight in the first round and just dominated Alexander Gustafsson. You hate to see this loss for Gustafsson, but it was a great win for Nikita Krylov. This fight was so one-sided and quick, there's not a ton to talk about here. Nikita Krylov just dominated. He never let Gustafsson have a chance in this fight. There was no point from when the bell, starting bell rang that Alexander Gustafsson wasn't in trouble until it ended, and it was a near-flawless performance for Nikita Krylov. He clearly game-planned to attack right away, swarm Gustafsson, and he executed that game plan perfectly. I wouldn't mind seeing Nikita Krylov versus Paul Craig next if they wanted to set that up. Nikita Krylov also finished this fight taking essentially no damage, so he could fight very quickly if they could find him a better matchup against someone maybe in the top 10. One intriguing matchup would be to put him up against Dominic Reyes. Reyes hasn't fought in quite some time, but he still holds a top 10 light heavyweight ranking. Krylov did call out Vulcan Uzdemir in his post-fight interview, and that would make some sense as well. It just depends on how much weight the UFC wants to put in this victory over Alexander Gustafsson, who hasn't fought in the light heavyweight division since 2019, and this was his first fight since July of 2020. On the flip side, not really sure what we do with Alexander Gustafsson now because I did think that this was a smart comeback fight for the UFC to set up for him. Krylov was a ranked guy who maybe didn't have as much momentum built behind him by the fight fans. So Gustafsson returning to the division with a win was what the fight fans were cheering for. Even though Alexander was the underdog, I do know a lot of people were hoping that he would win against Nikita Krylov. I personally hope that this was not Gustafson's last fight. I'm thinking maybe we do one more where we set up a Legends-style light heavyweight fight with a send-off fight against either Ovin St. Prue or Mauricio Shogun Rua. Neither one, I'm not saying either one would be an easy fight, but they would give him a chance to win on the way out. Either way, good win for Nikita Krylov. I'm just not sure it got him that much closer to a title shot. Paddy the Batty Pimblet versus Jordan Levitt. This fight, in my opinion, delivered as expected. I know some people thought this would be a snooze fest where Jordan Levitt would grind out a decision. A lot of the more casual fight fans were really heavy on Paddy Pimblet, so we did have to pay for Paddy in this fight. But a lot of the more diehard MMA fans know that Jordan Levitt is a very legitimate fighter. He had excellent mental preparation because he didn't appear phased in the slightest during his walkout to a crowd full of booze. He didn't get one cheer as he went out into that cage. Then, Patty the Batty comes out and the place goes nuts. Everyone's standing on their feet, they're chanting his name, they're singing along to his walkout song. But Patty has that switch. Once he entered the cage, it was all business. You saw the look in his eyes, you saw the look on his face, and once this fight started, these boys went at it. Paddy Pimblett was throwing punches with ferocity. He was punching to take off Jordan Levitt's head, and Jordan Levitt, realizing that, engaged in some wrestling to start the fight. The fight was exciting on the mats. A lot of people don't realize that Paddy is extremely good at jujitsu, and that's where he found a lot of his success in Cage Warriors prior to the UFC. 
Everyone has seen some of his knockouts in the UFC, and they think that's what he does. And while he can do that, the guy is exceptional on the ground. He was able to threaten some submission attempts on the ground against Jordan Levitt, and Jordan Levitt kept excellent wrestling pressure in this one. He made Patty work very hard early on in this fight, and it was an excellent game plan. Jordan Levitt was trying to wear down on Patty to take some of that punching power out in the early rounds of this fight. First round was very competitive. I actually gave the slight edge to Patty the Batty for damage and submission attempts. Jordan Levitt didn't do much damage with his takedowns. He was just trying to control, but maybe he did get some energy taken away from Patty Pimblett with that control. One thing I want to point out is that Jordan Levitt may not be the most exciting fighter, but you can't tell me that he's not at least very good and a very smart fighter. I do think he needed to do a little bit more in this fight with his takedowns, but part of that I think is contributed to Patty Pimblett making him work very hard to keep those positions. Patty landed a massive knee in round two, and he went to end the fight. This was excellent from start to finish. These fighters were very competitive, but Patty the Batty finished this fight and got the submission victory. It was a very impressive win because Jordan Levitt had never been finished in his professional MMA career. Huge win for Patty. I think he fights a ranked fighter next. I think Patty needs to be ranked next. If the UFC wants a massive fight, they could do Patty the Batty versus Conor McGregor in Europe. Just think about that for a second. Think about how many fans would go to Paddy the Batty versus Conor McGregor in Conor's return fight and Paddy's just rocket ship to the moon that he is on right now with gaining fans. Would Conor take that fight? No, absolutely not. He would definitely not take that fight. Would it be awesome for the fans? Yes, it absolutely would. It could be a passing of the torch situation if Paddy won and the UFC could really lean into Paddy the Batty and turn him into their new cash cow. And if it was a win for Connor, it brings him back into his winning ways against, like I said, Patty should be ranked, so it'd be a ranked guy. Another few options I could see for Patty the Batty would be to put him in there against a Tony Ferguson or a Dan Hooker, kind of a mid-tier ranked lightweight right now. Those are probably more realistic matchups because McGregor is likely not coming back to a fight that isn't a title fight or a fight that puts him one step away from a title fight. The only last thing I wanted to add about this fight was Patty's post-fight interview message to all the fans out there. Patty talked about getting rid of the stigma that men can't talk about their emotions when they're hurting or they're struggling. He unfortunately mentioned that one of his friends committed suicide the Friday before the fight. I can only imagine the heartbreak that that person's family must feel, his friends must feel. But we at the Homestyle MMA Podcast support that message from Patty the Batty. Please make sure you speak to someone. Really, just speak to anyone. If you're having any issues dealing with anything in your life, there is no weakness in seeking help. In fact, I think it is a very strong move. So make sure if you're having any problems, find someone to talk to. My thoughts and prayers are with those impacted by Patty's words in his post-fight interview. Last fight before we had our main event was Jack Hermanson versus Chris Curtis. This fight went how I kind of predicted it. I said Jack Hermanson would win by decision, and that is exactly what happened. Chris Curtis, I think, is a great fighter. He throws very hard, but he sits down through his legs and his feet to throw those really hard punches. So it was a kind of a tale of two different styles because Jack Hermanson was very light on his feet. He kept himself moving. He was bobbing in and out, side to side. And the first round, these guys were just kind of trying to feel each other out. They were trying to get a read on each other, establish their distance. But Jack landed some really good kicks in round one, particularly low leg calf kicks. And Chris Curtis really wasn't doing a good job checking those early. Round one went to Jack Hermanson on my card. Round one showed that Jack could really slow down Chris Curtis with low leg kicks to the calf. He saw that. I think a lot of us saw that sitting at home, and those low leg kicks 
just kept on coming into round two and round three. Kicking someone's legs are a great way to take out some of their punching power, which Chris Curtis undoubtedly has. In round two, it was pretty obvious Chris Curtis was getting frustrated with trying to figure out Jack Hermanson. He was kind of just chasing him around the octagon. I think one thing that Chris Curtis could improve on is his movement. I feel like there were a lot of times where Jack was moving a lot in and out, side to side, and Chris Curtis would literally just sit down in his legs and just stand there and literally not move his feet. I think if he worked on his movement a little more, he'd find a little bit more success. Also, by just standing there and kind of sitting down in his stance, it left him wide open for leg kicks. Jack was moving in and out without taking much damage, and when you're sitting heavy on your legs, it makes leg kicks do even more damage. So Jack was really beating up those legs of Chris Curtis. Jack landed some great shots in round two, which actually stumbled back Curtis as well, and Curtis just shelled up and kind of rode out the storm. Wintered round three with Jack Hermanson up two rounds on my card, and the kicks just kept going in round three. Chris Curtis started following Jack Hermanson around the cage. He needs to work on using efficient movement to cut off the cage. He was doing a lot of chasing. He was just kind of following Jack Hermanson around instead of trying to cut off where he thought Jack Hermanson was going. Don't get me wrong, I do think Chris Curtis is a good fighter with a lot of potential. He's got a great record. He's been around a long time. He might not have been around in the UFC for super long, but he's, he's a good fighter. He's had a really hard time solving the puzzle that is Jack Hermanson. The one thing I do want to put just straight up, Chris Curtis, you're a terrible loser. You lost that fight all three rounds in my eyes, and he was extremely disrespectful to Jack Hermanson, giving him the double birds. He was walking out of the cage, mocking him at the end of that fight after just losing three rounds. Yes, Chris Curtis did try to backtrack a lot of that on social media a few hours after the fight. And while I did appreciate that, his initial reaction to losing was like a, a little bit childish. I did expect Jack to win this fight. I didn't expect him to outclass Chris Curtis on the feet. So that's a great sign of improvement for him. 30-27 to 27 win for Jack Hermanson to me. I would still love to see the Darren Till fight happen with Jack Hermanson, but I'm not sure if Jack will have an appetite for it now. He is trying to fight his way up into a title fight, and sticking around for a fight that you're supposed to already have doesn't necessarily get him that much closer to a title fight. In the cage after the win, Jack Hermanson did say kind of tongue-in-cheek that he doesn't really want to train to fight Darren Till again but that he would do it, so we'll have to see what happens. And that takes us to our main event. Unfortunately, not a ton to talk about with our main event this week. This was the second week in a row that the main event ended in an unfortunate manner. Not how Curtis Blades wanted to win, obviously not how Tom Aspinall wanted to lose, he appeared to suffer a knee injury when he either kicked Curtis Blades with less than one minute into the fight, or when he brought that leg back and stepped on it and put weight on it again. Tough to tell when exactly the injury happened, but it was very clear Tom Aspinall was in a ton of pain right away. Curtis Blades wanted a dominant win to force his way into a heavyweight title conversation, and unfortunately he probably knows that this win is just not going to cut it. Hopefully Tom Aspinall has a speedy recovery and he can fight someone around 8-12 to 12 in the heavyweight rankings when he returns. It seems like this could be a long rehab, so hopefully he's able to fight another ranked opponent when he gets back because he is an excellent fighter. For Curtis Blades, I think you match him up with another top 5 guy as soon as possible. Blades had a beer with Tom after their fight and they posted that on social media. You can tell that these are simply just two very good people, so it was really sad to see the fight end in this manner because I think that a lot of people respect Curtis Blades and a lot of people are excited about Tom Aspinall, so these guys 
it's just an unfortunate way for the fight to end. They have a lot of respect for each other. You knew that they wanted to put on a brilliant performance for the fans. So much respect to Curtis Blades and Tom Aspinall. Maybe we'll actually see this fight again in the future because both of these guys are elite. They're both fairly young, so they're likely going to stick around the top of the heavyweight division for a few more years to come. So maybe if we're lucky, we'll see this as a title fight in a few years. Who knows? That's it, though, for the main event. Like I said, not much to talk about. Let's go ahead and take a look at how our bets did. So this entire fight card was pretty heavily dominated by chalk fighters winning and we like to look for underdogs because betting chalk is no fun. That's not what we're here to do on the podcast. I'm sure that a lot of fans maybe don't love that, but a lot of them do. We're trying to chase those guys who might get the win when it really looks like they shouldn't. Almost every fighter favored to win on this whole fight card got the win. And that set us up for a not great night of gambling. Outside of Gustafson, the underdogs that we took had at least one chance in their fight to get the win. They were in a position to hit a submission maybe or landed a good punch that maybe stumbled the guy, but they were ultimately outpointed by the end of the three rounds. Let's quickly run through these betting performances starting with the prelims. For Claudio Silva versus Nicholas Dalby, we lost Claudio Silva plus 225 by decision. Mandy Bohm versus Victoria Leonardo, we had Mandy Bohm minus 160, lost that one as well. Jai Herbert versus Kyle Nelson got us in the win column with a win, but we had Jai Herbert minus 275. Mohamed Makayev versus Charles Johnson, like I said, Makayev made me eat my words. We had Charles Johnson as an underdog plus 355, that was a loss by substantial decision. Makwan Amir Khani versus Jonathan Pierce. We had Jonathan Pierce minus 225 as a win. Nathaniel Wood versus Charles Rosa. We had Charles Rosa plus 333, which is another loss by substantial decision. Turns out Makayev and Wood should have been that big of favorites. I saw a lot of value on their opponents, and that didn't work out for us. Mark Giacchese versus Damir Hadzovic. We won Mark Giacchese minus 300. Mason Jones versus Ludovic Klein. We didn't have a bet on because I was on vacation last week in a state that did not have sports gambling, so we had to grab these lines very early. Jumping into the main card, Paul Craig versus Vulcan Uzdemir. We lost Paul Craig plus 120. Molly McCann versus Hannah Goldie. We won via that vicious TKO from Molly McCann. We had her at minus 335. Nikita Krylov versus Alexander Gustafson. We went with the return of Alexander the Mauler Gustafson at plus 160. And he was ultimately mauled, so we lost to that one with that first round knockout. Patty Pimblett versus Jordan Levitt. We did go with Patty the Batty, minus 250 for the win. Very impressive first round submission. Jack Hermanson versus Chris Curtis. We had Jack Hermanson plus 111 for a win as an underdog. And the main event, Curtis Blades versus Tom Aspinall. We were riding with the hometown Tom Aspinall at minus 225, and that fight ended on the unfortunate, very fast knee injury for Tom Aspinall. We finished the weekend down just over four units with another tough weekend. Too much chalk and not the right handful of underdogs. We'll look to bounce back next week. Taking a look at our verdict scorecards, we did get some points for Molly McCann winning. I had her by decision. She got the finish, so we didn't max out points there. Patty Pimblett won and by submission. We had both of those, but picked the wrong round. We had round three. We hit Jack Hermanson by decision right on the head, so we got all our points for that one. And we walked away from this fight card with a bronze medal in verdict. A bronze medal in verdict represents placing in the top 60% of participants in predicting the fight outcomes for the main card. You can find the podcast in verdict by searching for the Homestyle MMA podcast, all one word.
That wraps up our straight fight bets. Let's take a look at the Homestyle Perfect Plate Parlay in the Homestyle MMA Podcast Awards. The Homestyle Perfect Plate Parlay had Mandy Bohm, Mark Jacasey, and Molly McCann at plus 182. We lost that one because Mandy Bum could not efficiently use her reach advantage here, so this was busted. The Homestyle Perfect Plate Parlay needs a win, and we'll look to find it next weekend. Going into our Homestyle MMA Podcast Awards, there were no early prelims, so we start off with the Mac and Cheese Prelims Performance of the Night. We went with Jonathan Pierce for being the only fighter to get a finish in the prelims. There were some great performances, some great fights in the prelims, but a lot of times the heavy favorite just one via decision, so we went with Jonathan Pierce for his finish. The Chicken and Dumplings main card performance of the night went to Patty Pimblett for being the first person to finish Jordan Levitt. Just like with PFL format, the Homestyle MMA podcast likes finishes, and we typically, but not always, give our Performance of the Night awards to guys that end the fight with style. I also want to only do one person per award, so it's a very tough pick between Patty the Batty and Meatball Molly McCann. So shout out Meatball Molly. Very tough pick not going with you, but I ultimately went with Patty the Batty because... Jordan Levitt had never been finished, but excellent performance for Meatball Molly. Let's go ahead and wrap up the podcast. Final thoughts after UFC Fight Night Blades versus Aspinall. I feel that Vulcan Uzdemir should fight someone in the top five next in the light heavyweight division. Meatball Molly McCann and Patty Pimblett need to be ranked heading into their next fight, and they need to be fighting ranked opponents next. It's time. They have the momentum. They have the fan base behind them. Let's start giving them some real challenges like we're doing with Sugar Sean O'Malley. Nikita Krylov needs a fight in the top 10 ranked light heavyweight division as well, while Alexander Gustafsson should fight maybe an OSP or Shogun Rua as a send-off fight so that he can go run his gym. I would like to see Jack Hermanson versus Darren Till still, and Curtis Blades unfortunately probably needs another fight before he will get a title shot due to the circumstances of his win. Besides the Tom Aspinall unfortunate setback, the hometown England fighters performed well for their fans, and ultimately London showed out. As always, please bet responsibly. If you have a gambling problem, please call your state's hotline. If you're struggling with any mental health issues, please find some support as well. On Thursday, we'll be taking a look at UFC 277, Pena versus Nunez 2. Please go follow at the Homestyle MMA Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Homestyle MMA Pod on Twitter. Check out the Homestyle MMA Podcast podbean.com for additional information. I will continue to grow content on social media as we get further into this podcasting journey. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe, like, comment, and review. Until next time, this was Sean Van Buren on the Homestyle MMA Podcast. Have a good one.